Okay, number 23, statement number 23 in the document, Ellen G. White's Use of Forensic Terminology. This is where we will begin today. What page? Page uh, 8 is the, um, in that document is that statement, number 23. I'm hoping that we can make some waves and get a little farther today. What right had Christ to take the captives out of the enemy's hands? The right of having made a sacrifice that satisfies the principles of justice by which the kingdom of heaven is governed. He came to this earth as the redeemer of the lost race to conquer the wily foe and by his steadfast allegiance to right to save all who accept him as their savior. On the cross of Calvary he paid the redemption price of the race. And thus he gained the right to take the captives from the grasp of the great deceiver, who by a lie framed against the government of God caused the fall of man and thus forfeited all claim to be called a loyal subject of God's glorious everlasting kingdom. Our ransom has been paid by our Savior. No one need be enslaved by Satan. Christ stands before us as our all-powerful helper. In all things it behooved him to be made like to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Anything in there that strikes you? Well, just for clarification, what does succor mean? Uh, I believe it means to help someone, kind of nurture. It's sort of the old-fashioned term, I think, for nurture. Hmm. Uh, or, or to help them um, sympathize with them, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This may be small, but I noticed that on the second line, justice isn't capitalized anymore. No, because she talks about the principles of justice, and notice there's more than one. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and read uh, the next paragraph? Uh, Caitlin, why don't you... Now, this is number 23 in the handout, Thoughts on Atonement Statements, page 6. The obvious background to this statement is that Satan claimed the right to retain his captives as his, but he gained his captives by a lie framed against the government of God. His most direct lie involved the claim that human beings would not die if they ate the fruit. This lie seems to counter his real belief about divine justice and mercy unless he believes that God would merely forgive the first humans and bring sin wholesale into paradise. Read Desire of Ages 761. Commentary, page 10. Both this lie and his perception that justice was inco inconsistent with mercy, that, that should the law be broken, sinners could not be pardoned, that every sin must meet its punishment. If God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice, were refuted by Christ's death. How? Jesus' death showed that sin, not God, leads to death, and res resolving his outright lie that sinners would not die. For how it refuted his views of divine justice and mercy, reread Desire of Ages 761-762. through 762. She... She reasons here descriptively rather than legally. Okay. Any comments about that paragraph? 
It, it seems to me that she almost answers any problems uh, and, and that she's not reasoning from a forensic viewpoint here in this paragraph because she, the cause of the fall is a lie framed against the government of God and to use her words. And once you, once you shift to truth and falsehood and, and demonstration of the truth, you, you've really come, you can put it in a legal model because there is, there is a defense of the truth or, or attempts to know the truth in a courtroom setting. But there isn't usually demonstration of the truth like you have here. This, is, this belongs to a different model, a more descriptive model, uh, it seems to me. In the actual statement number 23, mm -hmm. when Ellen White is saying that Christ had the right uh, to redeem those who were lost, she's talking about Christ had the right to display the truth. He, he demonstrated the truth, and that gave him the right, because now we have the truth. It seems to me that she is saying that what gives him the right to redeem us is that he demonstrated the truth. And that means that everything depends on the demonstration of that truth to bring us back to God, to set us right, to justify us at all those terms that we use. And in doing so, then Jesus gives us the ability to actually choose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and the truth sets us free, actually. Uh, and, and God ensures that we have that freedom uh, to make up our minds. This sounds almost like a defense attorney presenting new evidence in a court before a jury. Yeah, but the new evidence is recently demonstrated in a sense. Uh, so it, it really, you can fit it into a courtroom setting, but, but it, it, it breaks beyond that. It, it moves beyond that. Okay, you want to read the next paragraph? Note that we have forgiveness through the forbearance of God. What Jesus obviously does here is demonstrate the truth about the nature of God's law, what it means to obey, how he can obey through modeling his love and how it connects him to his Father, how he can enable us to obey through imbuing us with the attributes of God's character. This cannot happen unless we see the truth about God fully in Jesus' life and death. Perhaps we do not realize fully how significant it was that Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law of love. By doing so, he worked out the full kingdom of God's ways, internalized truth, trust, and love, in opposition to Satan's ways of force, arbitrary measures, and contrived compliance. In other words, Jesus had to show that our way to obedience reflected Satan's lies about God. We obey from fear, under a threat of punishment, because we have to. We are obligated to in response of being forgiven. But this borders on mere compliance without understanding why we are to obey. We do not have an intelligent appreciation of God's ways so that we do what is right because we understand how right it is. We do not reject sin because we see what it does to us and to others, but what it will ultimately lead to. The kind of obedience Jesus offers us is one that springs from intelligent understanding of his character. It means that we love because he first loved us. His love has awakened in us love for him and correspondingly love for others. It means we trust him because he has demonstrated that he can be trusted, and most importantly, that it is not he who will hurt us, but sin and its consequences. 
it means that we will have internalized the truth about him, and that truth has set us to be our truest selves, what he intended us to be by creation. By showing what obedience really is, the nature of his ways, and what he is really like, Jesus demonstrated that he could set Satan's captives free by means of the truth. Thus, he won the right to deliver us all from Satan's and sin's power. And I think what is key to this is to understand that this whole process is natural, in a sense. That is, this isn't about compliance. This is not about a contrived, mechanical way of dealing with things. In a legal construct, that's all you have. Because you, you obey out of fear of the consequences, uh, and so you try to for you, everything is about force because you have law enforcement. So if you if you disobey, if you break the rules, you're going to be penalized, and and the courtroom is is in a sense to determine whether you're guilty or innocent. And here in in this model, it seems it's everything is dependent on the truth. The truth being demonstrated about God that enables us to be one back to love and trust. And, and we are one back to love and trust, not made to feel that we have to love and trust Him. Which is the construct I hear from many Christians. Many Christians are in the mode of we have to love God, we have to trust God. And it's, it's self-generated. There's no real love there. There's no real trust when it's self-generated. Uh, love is a response to being loved and trust is a response to finding the person you trust is trustworthy. And that's one of the things that I find kind of powerful in this, is that these things are elicited naturally because there is evidence provided that we can. Exactly, exactly. We can. It isn't we must, it is that we can. And, and the whole sin problem is the result of, of our thinking we can't trust God. I also find it interesting just the language that we're using here going from a must love to can love and how the latter opens it up to choice. I can choose now whether or not to trust God. But in the former model, I feel like I have to because I'm afraid of damnation or something. Okay, uh, let's move to number 24. By the way... There's a new translation available by Dr. Jonathan Gallagher uh, called the Free Bible Version. And reading Romans is just uh, a dream come true. <laughs> it's, uh, he, he's, he's removed the legal terminology that usually is used in translating it and put it into real terms. Hmm. And, and it's a totally different experience reading it. From the Greek? Mm-hmm. The Greek is not... My argument, I, I did my uh, master's thesis on the righteousness of God in Romans. Mm. And I argued that Paul was talking against a legal construct, not working in a legal construct against a legal construct, as has always been maintained. In other words, he's, he's, the, the usual belief about Romans is that Paul is arguing against the law, uh, against the works, against keeping the law as a means of salvation. Well, of course he is. 
but the argument is that he's arguing that in a legal construct. He's using a legal construct to argue against a legal construct. And my contention is he's arguing from a descriptive context against a legal construct in total. And the word for righteousness is not a legal term. I did, a, I did a quite a thorough study of it in the Old Testament and in the, uh, especially in papyrus use, in, in the papyrus documents. And it is a religious term, it is a moral term, but it is not a legal term. The legal term for righteousness is decay, which means justice. Um, and it means retributive justice. That's what they want to turn dikaiosune, or the, the term for righteousness, into, is that legal for, um, retributive justice. That the, the two words in the Greek for justice, I guess, sound like that similar root words? or yes. I don't know anything the, about the Greek. But <laughs> yes, the, the D-I, D-I-K is the same root. Anyway, just to, just to let you know, this is available. I'll try to bring the address next week uh, of where you can you can actually download it from online, and uh, it's you might enjoy reading it. Have you found your verse yet? I haven't, but I I, I remember more along the lines what it, lines what it says um, that um, it, it talks about how we're justified by. And there's some debate on um, uh, the the genitive form of these words, mm-hmm. faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus right, Christ. Right, right. It's called the subjective versus objective. Right, genitive. yeah. So I, I, I uh, thought that was interesting. Right, right. It's called the subjective versus objective genitive. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's the faith, and, and keep in mind that when you see the word faith in the Bible, it means trust. Yeah. And so what Paul is arguing for is that there's no righteousness in a legal sense of just making myself keep the law. The only real righteousness there is is a righteousness that leads to trust. And that trust has been uh, made by the death of Jesus. Jesus' death is what enables us to be able to trust God. And having experienced that myself, I, my, my conversion experience was basically that I saw in the, in the, the cross of Christ, uh, in his death, the fact that I could trust God. Because he, um, a God who would go that far to win me back was a God I, I knew would never hurt me. Yeah. Um, and it was, and, and from there it was just a natural step to think God is not going to destroy the wicked. At the end, it's, it's got to be natural consequences. And uh, it was then that I found it in Ellen White. So, yeah, this this is this is again we're we're shifting from a force paradigm really to a descriptive paradigm where everything works and functions naturally. Okay, so we are ready to read number 24, are we? Sure. we we're on the document, Ellen G. White's Use of Forensic Terminology, and we're on her statement, yeah. Number 24. Christ on the cross not only draws men to repentance toward God for the transgression of his law, for whom God pardons, he first makes penitent. But Christ has satisfied justice. He has proffered himself as an atonement, 
his gushing blood, his broken body, to satisfy the claims of the broken law. And thus he bridges the gulf which sin has made. He suffered in the flesh, that with his bruised and broken body he might cover the defenseless sinner. The victory gained at his death on Calvary broke forever the accusing power of Satan over the universe and silenced his charges that self-denial was impossible with God and therefore not essential in the human family. Okay. Any comments or observations about that? So what do we think the phrase transgression of his law means in this context? What, what does that mean? Yeah, that's a good question. Anybody want to comment on that? Some, some would say, well, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, God explicitly told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they did. That's a superficial approach, <laughs> a very superficial, shallow approach to the question. You know that the, the famous text behind this transgression of the law is the one in First John, that sin is the transgression of the law. That Greek, actually, is sin is anomia, lawlessness. So it has more to do with an attitude than it does an action. And if you go back to the fall, the reason Adam and Eve eat the fruit is because they believed lies about God and they broke trust. They thought they had to defend themselves. This fruit was supposed to give them an edge so that they would have power equal to God and they could therefore offset his abusive tactics. What we have in Genesis, I'm convinced, is, is a very cryptic thumbnail sketch of what conversation actually ensued at that tree. And, and so if we look at it that way, it's, it's so much bigger than that. But, but what is the law? Let's answer that question. I want to say natural law of love. Yes, the descriptive law of love. We love because he first loved us. Once we think he doesn't love us, that descriptive law is broken. Because we have no way to love. If, if we don't think he loves us, there's no way we can respond in love. And as all my notes here, for whom God pardons, he first makes a change within them. So and that's through his goodness, that's through his love. I mean, it's, it's, that's why it is all of grace. It isn't because Jesus paid a debt and therefore God can forgive us. It, it, it is that Jesus demonstrated the truth about the consequences of sin, which will enable us to want forgiveness, to enable us to repent. And, and it's, all, it's all descriptive. A true description of God's law, as opposed to Satan's false one. Yes, and Satan's false one, I, I believe, is the legal construct. Christ was without sin, else his life in human flesh and his death on the cross would have been of no more value in procuring grace for the sinner than the death of any other man. While he took upon him humanity, it was a life taken into unity with the deity. He could lay down his life as priest and also victim. He offered himself without spot to God. Um, I'll read the next paragraph. The atonement of Christ sealed forever the everlasting covenant of grace. It was the fulfilling of every condition upon which God suspended the free communication of grace to the human family. Every barrier was then broken down, which intercepted the freest exercise of grace, mercy, peace, and love to the most guilty of Adam's race. So my question is, 
what were those barriers that he had to break down? And what was the con were the conditions in which he suspended the free communication of grace? It doesn't say he completely stopped grace. Just he, didn't, he couldn't as freely give grace. What is, what is the condition on which he suspended? I can only do this. I, this is how I read it. I can only... I can only fully give my grace if, and what is the if? If he suspended the free communication of grace to human family. Well, he, that's part of, of actually, he suspended it because of something he has to, has to be done. Is it because he had to first display the truth about his law and... Now, once the truth is out, then he can actually show all of his grace. I think so, because without that truth, grace only puts us in deeper. <laughs> we don't get it. Yeah. We don't, we, in fact, we probably wouldn't even accept it in, in, its, in, in its truest form. So, yes, I, I think that's it. Now... I, why don't you read, Caitlin, the first paragraph then? We're now back to the uh, Thoughts on Atonement Statements, number 24. This highly metaphorical statement is packed with meaning. Note that sinners are drawn to repentance by Christ on the cross. The shift here is from human beings to God, but it is initiated and created by Christ's death. Then she shifts to justice, personified here, and says that Jesus' death satisfied justice, which equals satisfied the claims of the broken law. So satisfying justice and satisfying the claims of the broken law is one in the same thing. Interestingly here, she equates Christ's gushing blood, broken body, with the broken law. Literally, Christ's body was not broken at all. What she is doing metaphorically is suggesting that Jesus suffered the consequences of the broken law. This metaphoric understanding works best if we understand that those consequences are inevitable. When love is broken, it breaks the body. And surely Jesus suffered a broken heart when ripped from his father by bearing sin and its separation. Her reference to the gushing blood would likely be the blood coming from the spear thrust into his side which in the desire of ages she uses as evidence of his broken heart. To me, what this suggests is that Jesus, that when we break the law, we, we come to believe that God does not truly love us. That's, that's, that's really what is at the core of, of the broken law. We're no longer then in connection with God because we are afraid of him because we see him as we distrust him we see him as unloving and when Jesus suffered the broken heart that he did he suffered mentally thinking not that he thought this voluntarily of himself but those thoughts were there that God was not a loving God. He was not the kind of God he had proclaimed him to be during his life. And that's made very clear in Desire of Ages, the chapter Calvary, that I, I inserted into the document there on the chapter it is finished. So this is, this is broken, really about broken love. And she's using law, 
I believe in that sense. If we if we really believe that love is the fulfilling of the law, and that that God's law is a transcript of His character of love, there's no other way we can go. And one of the things I find interesting is listening to Jesus's symptoms, uh, and then looking back to the Garden of Eden, and the symptoms that both Adam and Eve displayed as soon as they quote broke it. There is an immediate distrust and fear and... And start blaming someone else. Right, to avoid punishment. Exactly. It's not my fault, it's hers. <laughs> it's not my fault, it's his. Uh, and and that, that scenario we live out in our lives every day. As we interact with one another, we don't trust one another. That's what happens in the family, in the, in the workplace, and then in our relationship with God. And I, I, I find it so painful to think that there are just hundreds of people trying to love God and trying to believe they love Him without knowing that He loves them. Well, and I just note that when I sin against someone else, my last reaction is to go ask for forgiveness because I know that I've placed myself in a vulnerable state now. They could punish me if they wanted to, at least in my mind. Uh, and so to ask for forgiveness is to make myself the most vulnerable. And that fear that I have in approaching someone comes from the idea that they don't truly want to forgive me back. And, and we've all had the scenario of not wanting to own up to something to our parents when we were young for just exactly that same reason. That is just now, now in my life, I, I can start to identify when sin happens, when I want to avoid someone. Mm. Okay, go ahead and read the next two paragraphs. Note the next metaphor. He bridges the gulf which sin has made. Note what has created the gulf. It is not God's holiness or his justice, it is sin. Her next metaphor is striking. Jesus suffered like this so that, quote, he might cover the defenseless sinner, end quote. She uses language that suggests that we are victims of sin and its abuse and views us the way God does as wounded, broken, and defenseless. Defenseless against what or whom? Against an angry father? No, this, this is not Ellen White's theology. We are defenseless against Satan and his claims against us, claims that only Jesus can meet. She has this in mind in her next sentence. The victory gained at his death on Calvary broke forever the accusing power of Satan over the universe and silenced his charges that self-denial was impossible with God and therefore not essential in the human family. Compare this with Revelation 12.10. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. This reminds me of something I have taught sometimes in the past, that the only reason God keeps an accurate record of everything we do is because there's a legalist out there keeping a record of only the bad things we do. <laughs> I'm curious, um, in the line where you wrote, we're defenseless against Satan and his claims against us, claims that only Jesus can meet, and then um, it looks like the Ellen White said, thinks the claims are 
charges that self-denial is impossible with God and therefore not essential in the human family. Um, I, I don't. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? I do in the next paragraph. Why don't you read it? <laughs> note that. Note also the equation she makes between the silencing of Satan's charges that self-denial is impossible with God, and there with therefore not essential in the human family. The most natural way of looking at this statement is to assume that Satan claimed that God himself could not practice self-denial. Therefore, human beings didn't have to either. But I believe there's more to these words than that. Human beings can only become self-denying, unselfish beings, as they see that in God. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 These words, if then... These two if-then elements are therefore inextricably part of a perfect whole that cannot be broken because it belongs to descriptive law. Satan's basically arguing. You can't... The, the law cannot be kept. And the basis for his argument is God is not love. Therefore, it doesn't work that way. The only way the law can be kept is through legal means. That's that's the closest I can get to really explaining what this means. What self-denial did Satan claim God couldn't practice? Well, he claimed that that God was in it for himself. He wanted our worship for his own sake. He created people for his own pleasure. He, he, he every every motive he had was selfish. Kind of how ancient. Civilizations understood like appeasement of, and, and kind of like the legal model really does portray him. The legal model is a very self-centered model, and the reason people cling—you need to know this when you're talking to someone who really clings to it. The reason they cling to it is because they're scared, and and this relieves their fear. They're scared of God and what His holiness and what He's going to do to them, and that's what drives them so that. They believe they have a legal right to heaven because of the death of Christ. And they cling to that with all their might because they want to be saved. Uh, let me suggest something that was said. You remember the weekend that they had a conference on the atonement at Loma Melinda? There was quite interesting discussion that went on at that conference because there's quite a few people at Loma Linda University who believe pretty much like we do. And um, they were there to defend <laughs> their faith. And, of course, the other people were there to defend their position on the legal model. And so it was, it was very enlightening. And at one point, one person... In, the, in a panel discussion who is forensic but is also open to our way of looking at it to some degree said that he believed that the atonement was made to vindicate the character of God or something to, along those lines and another person on the panel winced and said well I think that they, they, they had asked the question what is the most important Thing Jesus accomplished by his death, I think was the, the question. And, and that was his response. And another person on the panel was very uncomfortable, and he said, I would think my salvation is the most important thing. But right there, you, we know that the issue 
for many people is I've got to be saved. That's the primary importance. I, I'm terrified of being lost because of what will God do to me. And, and it's understanding the truth about God that completely relieves that basis. I think I told you uh, before the story I had with a pastor's wife. Yeah. You remember how she reacted to when I said, I'm not afraid of God because I know that I can trust him to do what's right and to do what's best. And, and I'm, I'm not afraid. And she said vehemently, Oh, I'm not afraid of God. I'm absolutely not afraid of him. But she was just, the fear was sticking out of every pore, it seemed like to me. Um, but like abused children, and, and, and this is why when I wrote my book, I, I suggested that the best metaphor for sin is abuse. And like abused children with an angry parent, we don't dare show any fear because he'll really come after us if we do. Because abusers typically are very, get even more angry when they cause fear in someone else. So, so it's, it's, that's, that's the problem here. And what Satan has done is tried, you know, he wanted to be able to create, and he has created, he has invented an entire model based on his charges against God, that his law does not work in descriptive ways. It works only in arbitrary legal ways. And so therefore, self, God is, God is in it for himself, just like Satan was in it for himself. That's, that's the key. Okay, Jonathan? The next paragraph raises a question. Why did Christ need to be sinless in order for his death to be of value in procuring grace for the sinner? One clue is the end of that sentence, that if Jesus were not sinless, his death would not have been more valuable than any other sinful human. The obvious assumption here is that a sinner cannot atone for his or her sins by dying. In a legal construct, this would not seem true. Why can't a person pay the price for their own sins and make up for them? This concept led to led the Christian church to practice penance, buy indulgences, and look forward to purgatory where one could atone for one's sins. But if the moral law is descriptive, a person whose sins dies as an inevitable and natural result of sin, and such a death does not atone for anything. It is not the nature of things that it could. Any questions, observations? Okay, um, I'll read the next paragraph then. Other factors exist that also make Jesus' sinlessness a necessity for his death to have value. Reviewing pages 48 of the commentary on the Desire of Ages, chapter 79, had Jesus sinned, he would have submitted to Satan's dominion of force. This implies something I've solely been coming to, that every sin is in some way either a form of force or submission to a form of force. Think about the Ten Commandments. Idolatry usually involves glorifying power and violence in some way. Killing is using force to remove life. Stealing is taking by force what someone else has, etc. Then think about it this way. Anything contrary to love, truth, and trust is by its nature forceful. So by sinning, Jesus would have given Satan the upper hand and justified his entire rebellion. 
Satan would have proved that force is greater, a greater power than love, truth, and trust. Another important factor is the fact that if a sinful human were to die the final death, it would not be clear that that death was the inevitable result of sin. In Ellen White's understanding, it was the inevitability of the death of Jesus that settled the great controversy over God's character and thus enabled us to be saved. The death of a sinner simply could not demonstrate that. The final lines of the paragraph above suggest the union between Christ as God and Christ as human. They also suggest a union between his roles as sacrificial victim and high priest, such a union makes the most sense in a construct in which the truth about God must be revealed in order for sinners to be saved. Okay. Any questions or comments? Two things. One, I find it so interesting that it's it, we kind of like have to have that paradox of Jesus as fully divine and fully human in order to be the perfect example. Um, and then secondly, I just I'm really struck by the idea that this that that Jesus's life and death was a demonstration, so that any sin would have tainted that demonstration. Um, I, I just I find that very interesting, and it makes descriptive sense. <laughs> yes, yeah. only makes sense in descriptive law. Because then we we wouldn't praise someone for dying for their sins. We'd say, well. Yeah, that's the consequences of sin. It doesn't atone for anything. It's the natural consequences. I'm still wrapping my mind around this. I, I, I feel like there's more, but I, you know, so much of, of learning truth is developmental, and you're, you, it's, it's like learning algebra and then pre-calculus, and, and, or algebra, trigonometry, pre-calculus, and calculus. You have to learn them in the order of the steps of which they take. And, and according to uh, Lloyd Best, you have to learn them at right at the right age, or you never, you never, you lose. You can't move higher. And and I almost feel like truth is like that. Um, that it has to do. It, it actually rewires our brains <laughs> to some extent. Oh yes, absolutely. And I, that I, as a as a math tutor, I I'm completely resonating with what Dr. Best is saying because. I noticed that especially with older students, uh, it's really hard to master the same concepts that it's been fairly easy for younger students to do. And it's not that adults can't. I, I have been able to work with adults. Uh, but I've noticed that there seems to be the right age for certain things to start to click. And I definitely think the rewiring process is what's happening. Because really when people ask, like, what, what am I going to use math for? I I no longer retort, well, you could use it in engineering. Well, you're going to use it in thinking. Math mm -hmm. is really teaching you how to think. It's teaching you how to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why there are always new problems to solve. <laughs> okay, you want to read? Uh, why don't you just finish this section? The final paragraph makes a very important summary statement. It infers that God communicated freely his grace to Adam and Eve before the fall. This is using grace in its broadest sense. The word grace, in New Testament Greek, means gift. Grace was exercised in the Garden of Eden when humanity partook of food, lived surrounded in natural beauty, 
with every need supplied freely, and enjoyed open, direct communication with God. Why did God suspend the free communication of grace to the human family? Because he was offended and needed to show his displeasure? Because his holiness abhorred their sinfulness and would not permit them closeness to him, like parents who disown a rebellious child? Because his justice demanded such separation? We need to ask, in what sense would any of this be true? Or is it more appropriate and true to say that God suspended this free communication of grace because his human family now distrusted him without cause because they believed lies about him? And such paranoia of God broke off God's ability to reason together with humanity and win it back to love and trust. The conditions then that Christ fulfilled was to destroy the lies that brought distrust and provide the truth that could draw human beings back to him. If God's gracious face would consume the sinner, how could he freely exercise grace? The kind of grace sinful human beings want from God is something that will not make it necessary to surrender to the divine sovereignty of love, a love that will transform their minds, but will enable them to retain their selfish hearts and their own self-righteous anger because the God who gives such grace resembles them. The barriers broken down are the barriers to human hearts, those who have seen God through the darkest glass, but now see him as he really is and, led to repentance by his goodness, have come to love and trust him. What this means is that it's wholly not arbitrary. (laughs) Use our well-worn word. It isn't something God decrees. Nothing in all broken communication broken trust broken law broken anything is not arbitrary it's not it's not something god decreed or or reacted against in any way it is simply the sin is the consequences of broken love and and it all is a natural consequence whether it's a law of sin and death as paul talks about or the law of life and righteousness and by the way, Romans 6 is a, is a great chapter to read on this because he really talks about the law of sin and death and the law of, of righteousness as though they are descriptive. Because he ends, well, he talks about sowing and reaping and then he ends, the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. If we earn anything, it's in the, in the construct of sin that we really earn. The rest of it is a natural process. Okay, well, we probably better quit with that today. And uh, I think next time we should be able to finish this. And then what I want to do, I'm not sure how many Sabbaths we have left uh, to meet, because the 18th I have to uh, do a Sabbath school lesson for the choir room Sabbath school. So we won't be meeting here. So we'll play it by ear. I do want on the last Sabbath of the quarter to deal with the implications of this in light of the article you shared. I I definitely am planning on that. Okay. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the way you have set the universe to run on principles of of things that are inherent and intrinsic and inevitable and that we call often natural law. 
We thank you that your ways in nature are illustrations of the ways you run the universe in, in spirit, your spiritual nature, your moral nature, and the way you interact with us. We pray that we may fully appreciate this and may be drawn to your love like flowers are drawn to the sun. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.